I have been reflecting on the question, what did the cross accomplish? How does it transform me ethically, morally, spiritually? What does the crucifixion of Christ as atonement, what does the heavenly, the spiritual ascension of Jesus have to do with overcoming my estrangement, my alienation from life, from God, from the very people I claim to love the most, and even from myself? What does the cross, the death of Christ, his resurrection, his promised return, judgment, and the and the promise of real life, of unending love and perfect peace have to do with my existence here, now. Well, what I've been trying to do, what I've been trying to say is that what I believe is what I believe Christian uh, scripture says about all of that and what I think it means and is supposed to mean to me. So in this podcast, number 34 in the quest and uh, number six in the chapter meeting Jesus on the road, I begin with the promised return of Christ. At the ascension, the disciples of Christ are told, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's Acts 1.11. The descent will be from the clouds, just as the ascent was into the clouds. As already noted, the clouds are frequently associated with divinity in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm thinking of passages like Exodus 16.10, 19.9, Numbers 12.5, and 2 Chronicles 5.13. A cloud overshadows Jesus and his disciples in their Transfiguration experience, Matthew 17, 5. And the ascension of Jesus, as already noted, is into the clouds, symbolizing divine majesty and glory. That he will return in the same way means not that he will literally descend on a cloud as if he were on a hoverboard, or that he will come with all the, the flourish as Paul adds in First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, coming down out of the sky as angels shout in celestial triumph as trumpets sound, but that he will come as he went, that is, as the presence and power and wonder of God. Furthermore, Acts 1, 11 is further suggesting that Jesus' return in the future will, like the Incarnation and the Ascension, be visible and personal. Classical Christianity, as I've tried to emphasize over and over again, believes and has always believed that God's clearest, most understandable, most profound, most definitive revelation to humanity has been and is personal is in and through and by a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, and I'm, I'm reading here from the NIV, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. As far as I know, there is no English translation that really captures the meaning of the Greek here, which if translated literally would say something uh, doesn't quite make sense in English, but would say something like, God has now communicated to us through sun speaking. For the Christian, the core of reality, ultimate reality, the ground of all being, the first cause, or the good with a capital G, as Plato put it, is not an it, a thing, a process, an idea, a concept or principle, but a person. And not a person, as I've tried to uh, make clear repeatedly, not a person as we think of person, but as a person nevertheless, and communicates to us warmly, intimately, lovingly, as only one person and one personal presence can be known to another. There are actually several Greek terms that describe the event of Christ's return. The New Testament sometimes uses the word parousia, um, for it, a word meaning not only to come, but also uh, someone comes uh, or, or arrives, that, that when someone comes or arrives, they are present. So in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul writes, everybody dies in Adam. Everybody comes alive in Christ. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first, then those with him at his coming the grand consummation. The Greek word translated as coming here is, again, parousia. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first, and those with him at his parousia, at his presence or coming. This coming or presence is also sometimes Christ's um, uh, epiphania, um, or his uh, phenerosis, uh, his manifestation. When Christ, who is our life, says Paul, appears, uh, comes, or is manifested, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Believers, therefore, are taught in the New Testament the spirituality of waiting, waiting in patience, in equanimity, in faith, in hope, and in love. Now, the Christian faith is full of strange and uh, rich paradoxes, and the spirituality of waiting is one of them, in that we are in a mystical sense waiting for what is already here, the presence of God. The second coming functions in a number of ways that support our spiritual waiting. I will mention just two here. The second coming confirms the resurrection. It corroborates the resurrection, the beginning of the defeat of death and all dark forces. 
It validates the victory of the crucified Christ, justifies the believer's waiting in faith and in hope, and it affirms Jesus as the Christ. And in doing so, excludes all ideas and expectations of another future or superior Messiah or prophet. People will tell you, says Luke in the Gospels, Luke, look, there is the Son of God, there is the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and follow them, Luke 17, 23. Another function of the promise of the second coming given in this telling of the ascension, said Paul Tillich, is to answer the criticism that Jesus could not have been the Christ since everything uh, now continues as it was. According to Christians, the new age has come. But the state of things, as far as the skeptic is concerned, seems pretty much unchanged. A first-century Jew in rejecting the message of the disciple might very well have said, demonic powers are as strong as ever. We are still waiting, waiting for the Messiah. To which a disciple of Jesus might then have answered, yes, that's correct, that's, that's right. Demonic forces have not been entirely dispersed or subdued, but something has changed and changed radically in the world. The old world, the old age, has been overcome. And so we now wait with renewed hope. We wait the coming of the complete realization of the new age. The Christian waits in faith between the joy of the first coming and of the second, between what theologians call the already and the not yet. The academic term for this great and mysterious paradox of the already and the not yet is inaugurated eschatology, which simply means that Jesus's bringing of the kingdom of God has both present and future aspects to it. The already and the not yet. Uh, the triumph has already occurred, but its full consummation rests in the future. It argues that the end is already here, but it is yet to be consummated. For example, Christians await the final resurrection, where they will receive new bodies. Yet, in a sense, believers are already raised with Christ and can already taste and Feel the resurrection life, Colossians 3.1. From the human perspective, waiting has a past, a present, and a future. Christ appearing, his coming, his parousia, uh, possesses these three dimensions of past, present, and future. 2,000 years ago, Jesus appeared in Roman-occupied Palestine, teaching wisdom, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, confronting evil, encouraging the disheartened, announcing God's kingdom as a kingdom of love. His actual work didn't last really all that long, about 
three years before he was humiliated, tortured, stripped naked, and hung on a cross to die. In the present, in the time between the ascension and uh, the parousia, uh, uh, Jesus continues his work, mediating in the heavenly dimension. But he is also present here, now, with us. The Holy Spirit connects us with Christ and lifts us into the presence of the Ascended Lord, with whom we are in union from the time of our conversion, being incorporated into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Christ is also present to us in the Word and in the Eucharist. He's present with us, present with a believing community, where the believing community is truly believing. And Christ lives in us as what philosophers would describe as an ontological reality, the consciousness of one living being of another living being. But that's something that ultimately has to be experienced rather than explained. John develops this reoccurring and warmly reassuring theme of Christ's continuing presence in the words of Jesus on that last night when in anticipation of imminent betrayal, arrest, and death, Jesus says this. He says, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you will may also be where I am. John 14.2-3 I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14.18 And there is, of course, Matthew 14.20 as well, where Jesus' last words to his disciples are, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. So that's the present. Uh, so that's the, the past and the future tense of Christ's coming. In the future tense, Christ will come again. Christ's return to earth at the end and climax of history is suggested both by Scripture as stated in the creeds, he will come again, says the Apostles' Creed, to judge the living and the dead. This ultimate judgment of the world by Christ is one of the most dramatic images of the Bible. It is also, for many people, especially for those from very conservative churches, one of the most problematic. So, I'm trying to think, how can I proceed uh, here without getting off into wild and crazy places or things like the late great planet Earth or the, the late great planet Earth is, I think, to radical conservatives what the Da Vinci Code is to radical liberals. Pure fiction that they treat as fact. 
Well, uh, I will begin with, with a couple of questions. Uh, maybe that will be best. One, do I believe in an ultimate judgment? Yes, I do. I believe that somehow, in some way, that I cannot phantom, through some process I do not know how to talk about, apart from the figurative and imaginative language of Scripture, I will, after my death, give an account of what I have done with the gift of my life. Two, do I believe in heaven and hell? If you mean by hell a literal lake of fire, or by heaven a city made of jewels with streets of gold, the answer is no. I was driving down the freeway about 300 miles from my home when I saw a sign advertising a church, and the sign said, We believe in a literal lake of fire, and then it gave the name of a church. I was astounded. I was astounded because the Bible makes no such claim. Every biblical text referring to a lake of fire occurs in the book of Revelation, a book which begins with this highly interesting assertion made by its author, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, unquote. The Greek word translated as communicated in the American Standard Bible is esimen, and is actually translated best in the old King James Version as signified, that is, what we find in the book of Revelation is a message communicated by sign or symbols. Jesus' favorite word for hell was Gehenna, which was literally the garbage dump for Jerusalem, where, like all garbage dumps, fires were always burning, smoking, smoldering, a filthy place full of vermin and worms feeding on the garbage. Knowing this, I would think when Jesus warned of the danger of hell, Gehenna, uh, those who heard him might have understood him to have been saying, be careful, don't trash your one precious life. You wouldn't want to wind up on a stinking garbage heap in the dump, would you? When in Revelation, St. John describes the heavenly city as perfectly squared, I don't think he's concerned with its literal mathematical dimensions, but rather wants us to understand uh, heaven as, as a dimension of perfect spiritual symmetry and balance and harmony. And when he talks about the city being made of jewels and gold and precious stones, what he wants us to understand is that heaven is a state of utter and incomprehensible beauty, true beauty. Heaven is nothing less than the full realization of the good, the true, and the beautiful. It has no light 
John says in Revelation, for the light of the moon. It has no need for the light of moon or sun, for God is its light. In all this beautiful and harmonious city, he says, there is no temple, because God is its temple. If asked for a literal description of heaven, I would have to say it is the peace and power and presence of God. I suspect, although I don't really know, that hell may be a kind of purgatory where there is the possibility of discovering more and more of that life that truly is life. I get that from, among, among other things in Scripture, the biblical indication that there are different degrees of what is experienced as consequence or results in the life to come. But it seems to me that for a person who loves things and who uses people or who is materialistic or obsessed with this world's pleasures, uh, to suddenly find him or self in a dimension where the rules of such satisfaction are no longer operative, th that that might very well be experienced as hell. I like something C.S. Lewis said along these lines about heaven. <clears throat> Lewis wrote, The point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you have not if you have not got certain qualities of character, the point is that if people have not got at least the beginning of those qualities inside them, there is no possible external condition that can make a heaven for them. That is, that can make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness God intends for us. Well, I need to bring this reflection to a, a speedy conclusion, grains of sand through the hourglass and all that. I think I will do so simply by quoting from John Knox's little book, Myth and Truth. We are bound to recognize, and this is a lengthy quote, we are bound to recognize, wrote Knox, the figurative, the highly imaginative character of the language in which the church has expressed its hopes for the ultimate future. The rich diversity of images it has used, not to speak of their obvious incompatibility with one another, if taken with any literalness, makes this character particularly clear. Moreover, it is manifest that in this area, especially, the only alternative to such imagine, imaginative language is silence. Either we speak of our dead as in Abraham's bosom, as awaiting the general resurrection and the Lord's return, or in some similar way, or else we refrain from speaking at all. But this last we cannot do. Our hopes are real, and they clamor for expression. We must say God will save us from death and that he will redeem our life from destruction, that by his mercy our partial broken selves shall be made whole, that we shall see God. We actually expect this in our own future. 
and we are convinced that it belongs to the future or to the already realized present of our dead. To be sure, we cannot speak of what God will do for us in the last day without using language which belongs almost entirely to the imagination. But this does not mean that we are doubting the actuality of his doing it.